Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat Series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, but not your host for this episode, because today I've handed over the mic to the Pragmatic Instructors for this episode. They're jumping in to have a roundtable discussion about trends impacting product professionals, specifically they will share some of their insights on ChatGPT and how we can all leverage AI for the better products. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat Series. I'm Paul Young, instructor at Pragmatic Institute and your host for today's episode. Don't adjust your headphones. Obviously, I am not Rebecca Calajaris, Pragmatic's VP of Marketing and Product Strategy and your normal host for this podcast. Today, the Pragmatic Instructor team is grabbing the microphone to step in and bring you what we hope to be a special episode about AI, machine learning, and some of the new tools in this area and their impact on our world. As instructors, we meet every week to have discussions about what we're seeing in the industry and the implications on the market. To help, today I'm joined by four excellent minds from our instructor team, Cindy Cruzado, Amy Graham, Terry Sadowski, and Will Scott. Let's start off with a quick round of intros so that everyone listening can put names to voices. I'll start. Again, my name is Paul Young. I've been with Pragmatic for about 12 years as an instructor. And prior to that, I was a product management and marketing executive at a variety of companies, ranging from really big to really small startups. And I've worked in both B2B and B2C, actually started my career as a software engineer. So this is a really exciting topic for me. Cindy, I'll hand off to you next. Sure. Hey, friends. This is Cindy Cruzado. Great to be here. I'm excited. I, I started my journey a pragmatic just over six years ago. That kind of scares me. But before that, I've been lucky enough to spend my entire career in product management and product marketing. Uh, I teach uh, all of our classes, including our new Insight class. So very excited to be here. All right, Amy. Hi, y'all. Amy Graham, based out of Denver, Colorado. I started right around the same time as Cindy did. So I guess six and a half years now. My background's pretty unique. I've done everything from human resources to director of operations, to project management, to leading software development teams, as well as creating and leading product teams. So super excited to be here and looking forward to this chat. All right, let's go to Terry Sadowski next. Uh, hey folks, it's Terry Sadowski, uh, happy to be here. I actually took my first pragmatic course about 20 some years ago. 
and have been a proponent and advocate ever since, and was fortunate enough a couple of years back to join Pragmatic as an instructor. Like Amy and Cindy, I've had a pretty eclectic career. I've worked in a variety of different industries, B2B, B2C, in a variety of different roles, but all around products. I've run marketing organizations as a, as a CMO, chief revenue officer, run product organizations, general manager for big companies like Paul and also small startups, some of which did quite well, some of which went completely by the wayside. So excited to be here, excited to be talking about this topic as well. All right. And finally, Will Scott. Thanks very much, Paul. Hi, all. So my name is Will Scott, and I am the latest addition to the Pragmatic Instructor team. But behind me, I have a 25-year-plus career, hardware, software, services, SaaS, big companies, small companies, startups, in marketing and management, product management roles. And I, too, took my first Pragmatic course about 20 years ago. Throughout my career, I've always lent on that learnings I got on the course to help improve how, our com- how the companies I work for have thought about products. So pleasure to be here. Fantastic. All right, so today's topic, we're going to be talking about some of the amazing new AI and machine learning tools, specifically one that's been in the news quite a bit lately with ChatGPT. And I realized that ChatGPT, although it's really hot, it's been in the news quite a bit a lot, maybe not everyone is intimately familiar with exactly what this thing is. So before we dive into talking about some of the implications of this tool and, and you know, its impact on all of our world, I was wondering, Terry, if you might start off by, you know, given those who may just be coming into this, uh, a little bit of an overview of what this is, and, and then we can talk about you know, why we care about it. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. I think it's good to kind of get everybody on the same page so we all understand. Some of you probably have done a deep dive into this. Others of you, maybe you're here to just kind of get uh, acquainted with what ChatGPT is. But fundamentally, what ChatGPT is, is it is an, a language model. It's based on artificial intelligence. And I think what's really set it apart and why it's gotten so much press and buzz lately is it really generates very human-like text, much more so than prior generations. And it is trained on a, on a massive data set. I think we're going to talk some specific numbers later. But the data set is big enough that it allows it to really understand and respond to natural language in with a high degree of accuracy. And it's getting used and played with in a whole range of applications. So chatbots for sure, but also any number of other different applications. We're gonna talk about a lot of them today. But I think what's really gotten folks' attention is just how, how easy it is, even though we're looking at, at an early generation of this application, how easy and powerful it is, and it's having repercussions throughout many different fields, like education in particular. So I know we're going to be talking a lot about that, but that's kind of fundamentally what it is. The other thing I would say before I turn it back over to Paul is what we're looking at today and what we're all talking about today is a very early generation of this. There's another rev of this coming, which we're going to talk about today, that's, that's going to just be exponentially more powerful than what we're excited about today and it's hard to even imagine what's what's to come yeah i want to jump in i did paul just because building off of what you just said terry one of the things that i think people are starting to see about this is that it's different because you can interact with it in a conversational way and when you say easy you're absolutely right you know you can ask questions ask follow-up it can actually admit mistakes which I think is amazing and challenge. And so I, I think that's 
partly the structure of it and how they've done this in OpenAI is making it so easy for people to pick it up and start to work with it. I would encourage anyone who hasn't tried it yet to go try it out. If you go to chat.openai.com, you can actually play with it. It's free right now in a test version. And it presents to you with an open-ended text box, just like Google. But instead of typing in a search term like you would to Google, you actually have a conversation with it. And one of the really cool things about it is that it remembers the context of your past queries. And so, you know, one example, I asked it to write a script or give me a series of ideas for a short film that was sci-fi. And it gave me three different ideas. And I said, all right, let's dig into idea number two and expand on that a little bit more. Now flesh out the characters. And, and as you built out each of these queries, it builds on past ideas in a very natural and, and almost human way, which yeah. is both fun, but also a little scary. Well, I agree, Paul. It's, it's very easy to be seduced by it because of the speed at which it provides the answer and the, how well written it is. But when you dig under the covers and understand how this works, it's, it's quite interesting is that it doesn't understand language like you and I understand language. So if you ask the question, who was the first man on the moon? What it does is it tokenizes that question. It goes interrogates this big data set and it looks for how frequently does a name appear next to those words. And of course, it returns Neil Armstrong. But if, for example, that data set had the name Mickey Mouse, it would return that answer. So it doesn't understand the question in the same way you and I would. Similarly as well, there's actually a website which shows some of the errors. And it's a bit of a classic example you might remember from software, your software days, Paul. But if you ask it, if a woman can have a baby in nine months, how long does it take nine women to have a baby and show you're working, it will return one month because it doesn't understand the question, it understands the logic. So I think when we see these answers, we need to remember it, this isn't a human that we're talking to and it, it comes with those limitations. And so um, that's, I think, one of the cautions we have as well. I think it's one of the things that gets people a little scared of it and the possibilities with it is that we assume it's might replace us, right? But it's a great distinction that you just made. So obviously, ChatGPT has been in the news quite a bit recently. You know, today we're going to focus on its implications to product management and marketing in those worlds. But, you know, Amy, Terry, Will, Cindy, do you, do you want to go over some of the big, you know, headlines or, or things that grabbed your attention that ChatGPT is, it's amazing how quickly ChatGPT has replaced NFT as the buzzword of the day just over the past, you know, three months. But it's it's come up with some big implications in a variety of areas. And, and I know we collected a few of them for our uh, listening audience today. Do y'all want to go over a few of those about places where it's it's kind of had an impact? Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in. You know, one of the things from my educational background, I was, I jumped on the headlines where it, it actually passed the bar exam and passed uh, some tests that I think Cordell and some others have put in front of it, not necessarily getting, you know, straight A's. And I think that's worth noting too, to what we were talking about, but that, you know, there's an application there that it makes me start to think about right away is as a tutor, for example, and, and helping guide students to think about, you know, the, that kind of test preparation and stuff. But the, the educational parts of this, you know, have grabbed positive and negative headlines. That's the positive one. I think that the negative one, I can only imagine students getting their homework done faster and the, the possibilities around plagiarism, which have always been there as we've been getting more and more automated. I can see a bunch of different uh, startup companies trying to provide tools to a classroom to, to help with it. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's on the tip of the iceberg around education, I'm sure. Cindy, I actually had a discussion this week, as a matter of fact, I was doing a public training in Chicago and the whole conversation around 
you know, the education space and students using it to write papers, essays, whatever that came up. And it's pretty apparent there's already tools out there that can identify if something's been written by AI or not. My concern is, do these school districts and educational institutions have the financial backing to invest in these types of tools to be able to, you know, discern this? I don't know. But that's a whole nother topic, right? I did want to bring up two things that came up real time in class this week. One student had recently used GPT to write their OKRs. And he said they actually wrote their OKRs first, then they plugged in the O into chat GPT. And he said it was actually his exact words were it was scary. It was frightening. It actually produced almost the exact same thing that they had already written. So we had a conversation about that. And then another, a different student shared with me that they actually used chat GPT to write their SEO briefs. So information around search engine optimization and whatnot, which I thought was pretty cool. So those were the two like really recent practical applications of this that I encountered this week. People are already using it in that way. Yeah. I think one of the most interesting ones I saw recently is Walmart is using, I'm not sure it's chat GPT powered, but some kind of AI powered chatbot to negotiate with a certain percentage of their suppliers. Yes. And negotiate buying terms with them wow. and yeah. with success. And it struck me, well, how long before the vendors use ChatGPT to negotiate with Walmart? And at what point do we just become superfluous to our yeah. own businesses? AI will just be negotiating with AI. I read that article, Will. Yeah. It'll save a lot of time if that happens. You know, it's like when you read about two supercomputers playing chess, the matches are over in a nanosecond because they, they crank through the, the hundred moves that they each make and it's, it's done. It's done. Now, the headline that really got my attention is that some organization directed ChatGPT to write a bunch of scientific abstracts and research papers, and then presented these abstracts and research papers to actual scientific review boards, just like a scientist would do to get, you know, before a paper gets published. And it fooled these experts about one third of the time which is just shocking because if the experts are getting fooled on their deep knowledge of a specific subject, you know, what chance do the rest of us have when it's just more topical kind of information yeah. or news information where there's already a high degree of skepticism of what we're reading at any given time about the news. I think this is just going to amplify it. And we're only at the very beginning. Yeah. I think this, we're like still day zero. Right. Mark, mark these days. This is this is bigger than the internet, I think. I really think it is. I mean, when you hear these, you know, it's 90% more accurate at reading radiology results than humans are. There was even a proposal recently that we're going to have an AI-powered lawyer arguing a court case. I mean, almost every industry you can imagine is going to be impacted in some way by this technology. The law in particular. I mean, because such a, a, a large degree of law is understanding prior case precedent. Yes. And and the magnitude of, of humans understanding that is is hard to even get your head around. But loading all that into a, a, an engine like this and, and that being able to kick out um, decisions and precedent and, and arguments, you know, I, I can see this being really an impact on the legal industry as well as just about every other one. It's almost hard to think of an industry that won't be impacted. Almost anything you could you can dream up. Yeah. And just to show this is not a 
pie in the sky discussion about a theoretical technology, the big players in the industry are now starting to react. Some of you may have seen recently the news that Microsoft, they just invested 10, is it billion? Billion. Dollars with a B into OpenAI, the company responsible for ChatGPT. And OpenAI is one of dozens, if not hundreds of companies that are playing in this area. They're just one of the really hot ones right now that's getting a lot of the buzz. So you could imagine, I mean, we could all imagine some of this stuff that could show up in Microsoft products in the future, you know, with Office, if you're writing something, maybe it'll offer suggestions with Excel, what that formula you're trying to write doesn't look quite right. Here's a suggestion, you know, and so on and so on and so on. The implications are, are all over the place. Well, they said that they're going to integrate it into Bing, which may actually make Bing a useful search engine versus Google. So that's going to be really interesting to watch that play out. They've also said they're going to load it into Word, integrate it into Word. And the way they're investing in it, by the way, I think is really interesting in that they didn't write a check. They've given ChatGPT $10 billion in Azure credits, which I think is pretty brilliant. And maybe Microsoft does that more routinely with other businesses, but it really, you know, think about how locked in ChatGPT then becomes on the Azure infrastructure. You know, $10 billion later, that's not a that's not a business that's going to get moved. Well, they're going to need it. If you've yeah. tried to log into ChatGPT recently, about every <laughs> other time you go to use it, it's saying, I can't support you right now. I've got too much traffic. And it's been a while since I've been to a uh, website that says, I can't serve you. I've got too much traffic in this day and age, 2023. So I read they had like 1 million users within the first, it was either like few hours or like days of kicking this off. Yeah, amazing. Wow. All right. So let's let's pivot now to obviously this has had it's a new technology. It's exciting to think about the implications. But like any new technology that that could be potentially disruptive, it creates a freak out moment, right? Everybody freaks out. So I guess my question to the group is why is everybody freaking out about this? Like what's going on here? <laughs> it's gonna write our things for us. Sorry. It's you know, it's good, you know, we need a positioning document. It's gonna gonna be the the help me get to the end goal and get the artifact built, you know, whether it's good or not, whether it does its job, you know, that we're going to perhaps miss out on the collaborative process to get there. My mind goes, goes right there. You know, as a, as a mom with a kid in college, you know, is this going to change the skills that they build in college? Maybe there's a positive to that, but there's, you know, are they still going to learn methodology? Can they write out all their work or is it just going to, going to be, you know, what's the analysis from this huge spreadsheet? A little scary. I think it's, I think what it's going to do, Paul, is it's going to, and everyone, it's going to force people to confront what they are, what they have naturally assumed as their, to use a pragmatic phrase, their distinctive competencies, Uh right? So distinctive competencies, we all know, right, is something that we're really good at, something that's valued by the marketplace and something that we can claim is unique to us. Just think about that copywriter who woke up on Monday morning. I was talking about this just this morning, actually, is that before, and I've been a CMO, right? If I wanted to engage a copywriter to write me 25 articles, it might cost me, if they were a contractor, I don't know, $5,000, $6,000. It might take a month, right? I have now just eliminated that job. If they're a mediocre copywriter, right? I mean, it's, it will force so many people to confront and reevaluate what are the distinctive competencies, and it's changed. Yeah. I reached out to my sister-in-law immediately. She's a content designer for a cybersecurity company. And I said, so, hey, have you heard of ChatGPT? She's like, yeah, it's all over the UX, UI forums. Everybody's talking about it. And I said, 
what's your feeling? Like, what's the pulse? And she said, it's pretty split. Some are worried about losing their jobs, being replaced. Some are not worried. Her perspective was she's kind of excited about it, frankly. She thinks that it's going to help fill in on some of this kind of mundane routine kind of writing stuff and leave her to strategy and design, which she was excited about. So again, it probably depends on the area you're at and the the specific task and job we're talking about, but there's opportunities to make people more efficient for sure. But there's huge fear about being replaced. I read a great quote. I wish I could claim it as my own. I suppose I could, but I won't. (laughs) The quote is this, that ChatGPT will not replace humans, but humans who use ChatGPT will replace humans. And I think that's really insightful and accurate. And Will, we've talked about this, and you made the point that this kind of raises the bar. Yeah. Uh, you know, in that example of your copywriter, you made a point that the mediocre copywriter might get replaced, but the great copywriter will probably figure out how to leverage ChatGPT to write even better copy. And that's what we're going to see. So I'm hopeful that this results in better output, better work product, but it might take a little while to get there. Right. And you you will see a, just an explosion of content it, it, because it will become so cheap and accessible to create that. And by the way, you can take that content. I sent Terry an example of the day, right? You take that content, you drop it into a box and it will cut you a video. Like it'll cut you a video with imagery and voiceover and everything. What, what, what take days takes minutes, yeah. We're, we're starved for more content, right? We don't have enough content already to digest. <laughs> Thank God. That's interesting, though, with so much content, where is it going to take us? You know, what you know, what kind of tools can we maybe even not imagine today that will help us consume content more rapidly? You know, and, and just, just to play with this a little bit, we... When we talk about, you know, trying to find themes and patterns across different data sets and interviews and web posts and things like that, you know, we we might be just seeing an easy easier way to get there, but seeing a lot more patterns means that we need to kind of upskill our ability to decipher them and go through them. You know, does that mean our glasses are going to get smarter? You know, what, what kind of, you know, physical and software products might people imagine to help with this incredible explosion? Perhaps what it means is because of the explosion in AI-generated content, we now need an AI to help us sort through all of this content and surface the best stuff. But just talking about something that Cindy brought up is I was reading a case study recently. It was a company developing an AI-based, generative AI-based tool to create adverts for LinkedIn, all right? And basically what it do, it would, you know, you'd put in your prompts, it would create 10 variants, it would run those on LinkedIn, it would watch them for three days, look for the top three best performing, see what was common about them, take those top three, generate another top 10 variants, almost in a Darwinian fashion with a matter of two weeks. It's gone through hundreds of different adverts and calls to action and language structures or what have you, something that would take a mortal marketeer months to do it gets done in a matter of time. So that's incredibly powerful. If we look at what it's really good at, patent seeking is one of those things that it's really, really good at. Wow. A-B, A-B testing on steroids. Yes. Actually, that, that, that provides a really good pivot to where I wanted to go next to specifically, we've been kind of zoomed out. Let's zoom in specifically on the implications to product management, product marketing, marketing teams. And what are some of the use cases that we can envision today and, and new things we might see a tool like this being used for in that space? Well, I certainly go first. I mean, one of the one of the things I found it really useful is in the ideation process. 
you know when you sit down with someone, you have a cup of coffee, you say, what do you think about this? Or just to, just to get those ideas, to spark that creative process. It's incredibly powerful. Hey, tell me what's going on in XYZ. And it comes out with some stuff. Really, really useful. The other thing I really like it for is the rewrite capability. So you can give it a block of text and say, rewrite this or rewrite this in the voice of. One of my favorite things is write this in a haiku. Summarize this in a haiku, for example. But just the ability to have it as a companion that's always on to help you in the creative process, I think would be very powerful to product management and particularly product marketeers as well. The thing that I'm really fascinated with, and I haven't played with this yet, but I, uh, <laughs> I had a conversation with ChatGPT about its capabilities here that was really interesting. And ChatGPT said, I could upload or give it access to all of my interview notes mm-hmm. and then ask it questions about my notes. So I could, I could upload 500 pages of, of notes, of verbatim comments, and then ask it questions as though it represented the voice of the collective customer or collective interview subjects. I find that fascinating. You know, and of course you would need to double check that and, and, and fact check it, but just having that kind of a tool available at your fingertips is so powerful. So what about, I've been thinking a lot about if, if we just think about some really specific things about what we teach, like personas, like yeah. positioning documents. I think it would be fantastic to be able to leverage a tool like this to write a positioning document to save time. But what about things like empathy and like making sure that the the actual consequence is understood and reflected in those documents? How do y'all feel about that? Yeah, I... <laughs> It's interesting, when we think about persona-focused positioning, we have to first do the research to make sure that we are understanding the personas in our market. So it might actually help do the research to get us faster to the ability to use positioning more effectively. But unless you've got that body of research, you're not able, as you say, to kind of build in the connection between problems and goals or to truly be able to highlight why are these problems important now, kind of that background piece. I think that's a very real challenge in doing that. Yeah, I think it's, as I think of that distinctive competencies challenge, what makes us special as humans that chat GTP can't yet emulate? Yeah. For me, it's like when we do discovery, you know, if I sit down with you, Amy, we do discovery questions. My ability to really good discovery is to connect with you as a human, right? Is to gain your trust is to listen to your intonations and your hesitations and see when you're struggling with the words, see when you're browsed for a little bit and use my situational fluency to work with that. That's the nuance and subtly of a human talking to a human. Right. Discovery is not just going through a list of questions. It's not just going through a list of questions. It's much more you know, nuanced and subtle than that. So I think that's going to be an area. Same with you, though, Cindy. You know, you know, over my years, I've worked a lot with technology companies, had many, many conversations with CIOs. I like to think I understand CIOs just because I've absorbed so much of them over the years. Now, could I write that down? Probably not, right? You have this sort of sixth sense when you see messaging, you say, I've hung enough with these people. I know that will resonate with them, but not in the way you can articulate why. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you walk into a place, you say, I've got a bad feeling about this place. You yeah. don't know why. It's just some sixth sense, a chat GPT. Possibly it does. We don't know about it. Can't do that quite yet. It can't see the raised the raised eyebrow. Yeah, it you didn't know. see the raised eyebrow. Yeah. Yeah. Or the or 
it can't see the the post-it notes stuck to the monitor that that you'll see the observational slide. Now it will get there. You'll be able to feed it video eventually, and it will absorb enough content that it will be able to infer human emotion from the face you make on a Zoom recording. You know, for example, we're not there yet, but you know, Will, we were talking about this before the pod. Right now, we're on Chat GPT three. There's version four coming out soon. And you were expecting... So chat GTP3 has 175 million parameters in it. Chat GPT4 will have 175 billion parameters in it. So it's about to get 100 times better. And chat GPT3's data set it was fed was as of September 2021. That was when it was frozen, right? Surely we're going to get to the point where it's just dynamically updated all the time. So yeah, we've, we've just begun this journey. And it is worrying, right? We're terrified now, and that's GPT-3. What happens when four comes out? Yeah. What about 10, like said, day zero. 10 in five years? That's going to be mind-boggling. Yeah. That's what's so exciting is we're just on the very front end of this, and we're all going to be witnesses to this uh, sea change in, in how humans live and interact with each other and with the world at large and especially with technology. One of the things that I found really interesting is, again, early discussions, there are roles today that didn't exist 50 or 100 years ago. Like, like we don't have lamplighters anymore. But if you went 50 or 100 years ago and you told them about a webmaster, they would say, uh-huh. what is that? Yeah. But 50 years from now, or maybe even less, one of the roles that I see coming up now that I've started to hear people talk about is what they call the prompt engineer. The idea that uh, there will be a role whose job it is to come up with the prompt that you feed into a tool like ChatGPT to get the response that you're looking for. And although we call it engineer, maybe that's a misnomer because it's more probably a proficiency in language or, or asking questions there and maybe less about writing code, but rather formulating the question in the right way, which I find fascinating. I wonder how within product teams and product organizations, how fast it'll accelerate product operations roles and what what will be the requirement, additional responsibilities to be able to write prompts that will be required for product managers, product owners. You know, is that going to be the next rev of uh, resumes that we start to see people highlighting that skill right away? How long before you see it in a job requirement? You've got yeah. to be pragmatic certified and you have to be a chat GPT proficient prompt engineer. Exactly. <laughs> and some of the some of the specific tasks, the things that we teach across our classes, you know, we've talked about patterns, being able to use chat GPT to kind of help us get patterns identified faster. I can certainly see that. But one of the things I start to think about is what data sources is it pointing to? And I think just naturally we know when we teach today that there's a little bias that we're seeing students not necessarily spending enough time in the market, not going beyond their own customers. And so there's data missing with potentials, evaluators, competitors, customers. And so I wonder if, you know, that's a role that we're going to see product teams start to concentrate more on is asking because they have the time. ChatGPT can kind of, you know, do the interviews, aggregate the patterns, then can we spend more time figuring out where we're not seeing and spending time, where are blind spots? Because one of the hardest things, I think, for product teams is actually getting their arms around all the data that they need. They go with what is convenient. 
Yeah. That's a really good point. Because if you think about how this might evolve, kind of building on the comments earlier around how we all have our distinctive competencies and to the extent these distinctive competencies that we believe we have to start getting encroached upon by technology, we're going to move to where they can't be encroached on, which will be all that intuitive, empathetic kind of research work. So maybe that's going to force people to start doing more of that market research that can't be replicated by technology because ultimately that's going to be a point of difference for your business. You know, more insight about the market is, you know, today it's really important, but tomorrow when everybody has the same information, that's going to be a bigger tiebreaker perhaps. I, I think, and I love that phrase, prompt engineering. And when I heard it, I, it resonated with me because I think when we're in discovery mode, we're prompt engineers. It just so happens we're formulating that question in our heads. Yes. And the thing that we're interrogating, that's a brutal word to use, but is a human, right? So knowing how to engineer that prompt, that question, it's all about asking that right question. But when it comes to pattern recognition, imagine now when we've got all this data, right? We've got our Darwinian selected best performing LinkedIn AdWords, and then we're tracking people to our website as they move around there and seeing what content they're resonating with. And then we're tracking them through Salesforce and we're seeing how long they're in the sales cycle. And then they start using, let's say, our software products so we can start getting all the telemetry from that. And now we attribute that whole thing with demographic data. Imagine what we're going to surface there. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of effort and computing power. There's nothing... Star Trekky about what I just described there, munching all those data sets together and looking for that pattern. Well, let's going to be the strength. Well, let's take that to its sort of maybe endpoint. So, fast forward five or ten years from a marketing perspective, today we use tools like Pardot, Marketo, and so on to track how people are transitioning through the buyer's journey through our, you know SEO through our website to our content ultimately. Well, let's say we see someone hitting a search term. And then they come to our website, they hit a couple of various pieces of content. Yeah. And then they type something into the search bar that we don't have content for today. But guess what's going to happen now? The AI is going to write it in real time and present it to the person as they're going through their journey where it didn't exist before. Yeah. And, and we're going to have this almost in real time mapping from the buyer journey to the content that they need to make a decision in our favor. Right. And so the, the marketer of the future and the product manager of the future, you could even extend that to perhaps 20 years from now into features and into capabilities of the product, maybe product capabilities or reports, like maybe report is the easiest way to envision this, a report that doesn't exist today, but the AI is able to infer from their actions in the product, what information they're actually seeking, and then build yeah. a report on the fly for them that didn't exist previously in the product. How fascinating would that be? Think about the application. That's fascinating. And when we think about custom demos, you think about you know people doing 30-day free trials, being able to make it more personalized, which is, which is kind of what you're getting at. That's awesome. All right. So there's a lot of future. We talked about a bunch of use cases here. We talked about creating OKRs, objectives and key results. We talked about processing a lot of data from interviews and surfacing some of the trends, perhaps writing use cases or user stories uh, is something that it could do or, or writing requirements. There's a million examples if you go search right now of, of chat GPT writing PRDs and writing user stories. We talked about the implications on marketing and perhaps how that might change things going into the future. But let's transition now to some of the cautions. Like any new technology, it's not perfect. What are some of the, the, the hot spots, the danger zones, the pitfalls that we might step into or, or people might step into over the next few years as this starts to evolve? 
Well, one of the issues that Will mentioned as well is, at least today, the current chat GPT is frozen. Like the data is not, there's nothing more relevant than the last 18 months or so. And it's not perfect. Like the, not even just the example of the one or nine women having a baby, but just there's facts that are wrong. Like I, uh, after David Crosby died last week, I was curious I was in ChatGPT. I wanted to know how many times had he been elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Twice, by the way. Then I want to know who has been elected the most. And I did a Google search and learned that Eric Clapton had been elected the most three times. I put it in ChatGPT and learned, according to them, Paul McCartney had been elected four times. The fourth time was as a member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, which obviously is not true, but there it was. And I didn't prompt it or anything like that. It was just in blatant inaccuracy in there. And it made me wonder, like, if that's inaccurate, you know, what else might be inaccurate? Yeah. Where could it possibly have gotten the data that said Paul McCartney was in Bruce Springsteen's backup band? That's insane. <laughs> so, and, so I think it, especially when you're doing research without it being dependent on your own data, it's necessary to at least fact check it. Yeah. I think the danger is it presents a big old easy button that people are going to want to press. That's the real danger now. Hey, I'm not going to go and do discovery visits. I'm not going to. I'm just going to ask ChatGPT because it sounds really plausible. Look how quickly it comes back with answers. I'm not going to spend time thinking about what's resonant market, marketing based on my intuitive knowledge of that market over the years. Oh, I just asked ChatGPT. We've got to watch the caution of being lazy because I think we will, because it is so commonplace and accessible for everyone, we will slip, if not into me mediocrity, into stuff that looks the same as everyone else. So the need for us to be innovative, to access those things that are distinctive for us as humans, will just be, you know, further elevated, I think. That's my, my worry about it. I love what you just said, Will. I completely agree. Perhaps just like ChatGPT is being presented today and other tools like it as a first generation or beta application of this technology, anyone using it should also treat the output from it as beta or first generation. So if you're, to use your example earlier, Will, of the copywriter or the CMO using this to generate a dozen blog posts on a certain topic, you could take those and immediately slap those up onto your website, but it would probably behoove you to fact check them, as Terry said, to just give them a a read, you know, as a human and say, does this logically make sense? Because yes, while ChatGPT and tools like it are really good and they will continue to get better, they're certainly not perfect. And they will generate some stuff that's pretty weird. And sometimes you look at it and say, okay, that doesn't make logical sense. I used not ChatGPT, but another AI tool yesterday while I was prepping for this episode, just playing around. I'm sure many of you have seen this rage on, on Insta and Facebook and so on of, of you can plug in some of your photos to a profile generator, and it will actually produce a whole series of profile photos for you yeah. uh, that you can use on your social networks. And so I fed it, you know, maybe 20 different photos that I had in my library of me. And it came back with 400 different variations of like AI created photos of me that I could use on my various you know sites. Some of them were actually pretty good. Some of them were hilariously bad. Like you know, I had two heads, or there was one my favorite. I wish I could maybe I can get our team to post it alongside this episode. But it was it was a picture of me with my arm around like a teenage version of me. So it was like 
two of me in the same, but it was just like, okay, that's really weird and creepy. Um, and, and that creepiness that, that, what, what do they call, there's a name for it where it's the, uh, that creepiness factor that sometimes crawls in, uh, with AI where it's yeah. like close, but not, not quite there. Yeah. It's easy to see that in, in images. It's maybe a little bit harder to, to detect that in writing yet, but we just need to treat everything we get out of it with a great assault for now. We, we, we do have to be careful. You know, Terry sometimes calls me the meta man because when I, I like doing meta things. So when there was this product requirements document generator available online, I asked the product requirements document generator to create a product requirements document for a product that uses chat GPT to create product requirements documents. So I got it to design itself. And actually did a decent job, but it actually brings something else, like why we should be worried. And I was joking with my wife this morning about it. I read this article that says some AI system, I don't know whether it was ChatGPT, was fed a big list of all the world's problems and asked, how do we solve all these problems? And the answer was, eliminate the human race. And that was the answer. So we want to be careful, right? If we've learned anything from the Terminator, is uh, we've got to be careful with this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, don't give it weapons, perhaps. All right. So that leads me to my last question. And Will, that's actually a really good segue. So we've talked a lot today about ChatGPT and other tools like it. When you think about the future of tools like ChatGPT that use AI, that use machine learning, are you more hopeful or more fearful of this technology and why? I am both. I am hopeful. I'm excited, but honestly, I'm fearful. I'm fearful it's going to get misused. I'm fearful for the impacts on the environment, potentially, which not a lot of people are talking about yet. So I'm honestly somewhere right in the middle. When you say the environment, are you talking about like the socio-political environment or like the the, the climate? Uh, both, actually. Yeah. Like the carbon footprint it's going to leave and yeah, all of the above. The amount of processing and data centers that yeah. it's going to have to create, exactly. but also now with kind of related to tools like ChatGPT, I'm sure many of you have seen the news about deep fakes, where it can actually like create a video of you using samples of videos of you in the past. So if you've got YouTube videos, or maybe in the future, if this pragmatic product chat podcast turns into a, a YouTube series where there's video as well, you could actually take video of all of us. And if you have enough samples, there's AI that can replicate our voices, our videos, and you can create words that come out of our mouth that we didn't actually say. Yeah. And so you can imagine the implications on politics, especially here in the US with the recent stuff that's been going on, where all of a sudden a, a viral video goes around with somebody saying something that they didn't say and the implications that might create. That's that's pretty scary. Exactly. Very much so. I'm, I, I'm with Amy. I think there's some amazing things that we're going to witness that are just mind boggling and positive and wonderful for all. But I do worry about, you know, kind of a more existential concern, like what happens 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, when this becomes normalized and it's not just us making transition, but it's like our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, how are they, you know, what's the world like at that point where, you know, so much critical thought, and reasoning and rationale maybe has been outsourced to AI and technology that people have lost their ability to think. And, and that notion of Winston Smith in 1984 is not so far-fetched, you know, because people don't have a way to push back and they just accept what the, you know, what comes down from, you know, call it Big Brother or whatever you want to call it. Somewhere the data is being controlled, whoever is 
is feeding the AI with the data is ultimately going to have a lot of influence on every aspect of, of what I, comes I think, out. Terry, you're right. I think we, we should be fearful of that Orwellian future. Because I think for me, it's going to challenge what people, I mean, what I want people to do is to carry on thinking for themselves. And if we just become reliant on AI to do our thinking for us, then that's a big implication for society. We will believe what we're told. And then the second thing to go with that, to get a one plus one equals three effect, not in a good way, is if a whole bunch of jobs now, a whole bunch of knowledge jobs are now being replaced by AI. And those people who are being replaced can't reinvent themselves, can't find that utility to something else, then what's going to happen then? And, and that's not just AI, right? That's what well, it is. It's like the self-driving trucks, right? If we have self-driving trucks, there's 350,000 people out of a job. Do you know what I mean? So we, we don't want to have a future like we see in that movie, Idiocracy. That's what I'm most fearful of, to be honest. Not necessarily for myself, but for my children, that might be the future. But in the same respects, it's incredible the things it do. Just look at the intelligence doing creating drugs, for example, and discovering new drugs. It can do what used to take years in a much, much faster way, or whether it's those radiology results or what have you. So also hopeful about the things it can do. But yeah, it's, it's certainly double-edged sword, for sure. When I think, when I, you know, there's absolutely a lot of potential for this to go wrong and it will and devastating, you know, potential, you know, things that you've all mentioned. But one of the things that makes me think very hopeful, maybe even about job security for product managers and product marketers is that for all the reasons we've said, it, it can't think for itself. It's not complete data. It does introduce bias. It just means that product managers are even needed more to be able to interpret it. And maybe it helps them as product managers, product marketers get more data-driven a little faster within the realm that they're, you know, have the ability to control. But we should, we should run towards building the competencies so we can take on that new job, right? Not rather than feeling, you know, that it's going to replace us and there's nothing that we can do. So for any, anybody who's listening to this, when we think about product management, you're needed even more in this world. Absolutely. I'm both, as y'all said, hopeful and fearful. On the, on the hopeful side, my hope is that for product leaders, for product managers, for people that might be listening to this, that in five years time, you look back and you say, tools like this have allowed me to free up my time so that I can do more high value work. Right. Like we talked about getting into the market and so on. I think that's, I think that's awesome. But we're going to have to put some guardrails around this technology. So if you're in a role right now where you're developing tools like this, if you're, if you're, you have a role that has a lot of responsibility, I think, and you have to wield that in a responsible way. I'll paraphrase here. If you've ever read Isaac Asimov, you might remember his uh, three laws of robotics. I'll paraphrase the first one for AI. An AI may not injure a human or through inaction, allow a human to come to harm. The AI must obey orders given by humans, except where such orders would conflict with this law. I think something like that may be really important. And I'll just remind everyone that whenever a new technology comes out, everyone freaks out. We, we, Will, you had a great word for this when we, when we had breakfast the other day. I think you called it uh, catastrophizing or catastrophizing. Catastrophizing, like, yeah. Catastrophizing, yeah, I can never pronounce it correctly. But we see that we see the negative impacts, right? The, the catastrophic impacts. But... I'll remind everyone that in the 1970s, 1980s, there was another technology that came out, and especially in the, in the educational space, 
there was a huge freak out about how it was going to change everyone's life. And, you know, we have to ban this from schools. It was called the pocket calculator. <laughs> and, you know, we, we look at something like long division today on paper, and we think about why would anyone ever do that? Right? You have a calculator right in front of you. My suspicion, tools like ChatGPT will be regarded as the pocket calculator 10, 20 years from now. And it's going to be no big deal. It's not the end of the world, just like the calculator wasn't. It's, there's going to be a lot more good stuff that comes out of it than bad. That's my hope. Echo that for sure. That's great. All right. So that does it for today's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye.